this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. Have you ever received a blessing or a gift from God? God's a generous giver and he loves to bestow generous, good, and perfect gifts. And I believe that there's a story in the Bible that makes it clear that the way we respond to the gifts given by God determines who we belong to. Who do you belong to today? Jeff Parker was telling me this week about a time when he was a kid in elementary school. Remember those days, elementary school? Some of you guys, that was so long ago, you might not. Well, they might not have had elementary school then. (laughs) I'm talking about you, Susie. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, he was telling me about a time in elementary school, uh, which for him, I think, was in the 2000s. Um, Yeah, so he was telling me about this time when, you know, all the kids were out at recess and they're going to play kickball. I think it was kickball. And so you know how it goes. They pick two team captains and all the kids line up and they just start picking teams to play kickball. And I don't know if you've ever had this situation where most of the kids are getting picked, but you hadn't got picked yet. Jeff says it got all the way down to him and to that one little weird girl that plays with bugs. And it just devastated him that nobody wanted him for their team, right? I mean, it's devastating to not be desired. You know what that's like? You know what it's like to not be wanted? You, you know, nobody's, nobody's admitting that they know what it's like. But uh, come on, Joel, you know what it's like to not be wanted. <laughs> Thankfully, you're married to a wonderful wife and beautiful children that love you and always want to have you around. And there, I'm getting this from her right now. <laughs> so you know what it's like. You probably know what it's like. I mean, I, I know that there are times when I may come into this room and everybody's walking around and talking. You know, it's before or after a service or it's on a Sunday night thing that we have. And I'm looking for somebody in particular. I've got a message I need to deliver. I've got something I need to do. I got to make sure somebody gets something. So it's probably my wife. I'm looking for her. So when I walk in the door, I'm on a mission, right? And I'm scanning the room. I'm scanning the room. And I'm not just kind (coughs) of taking my time and and tiptoeing around. I am walking around on a mission trying to find my wife. I may see a hundred other faces that I know, but I completely disregard them until I find her. And once I see her, I lock in on her and I make a beeline right to her so I can tell her what I need to tell her so I can accomplish this little mission that I'm on. You ever been, you ever been there? There's been people before that have told me, they've said, Steve, sometimes you're just kind of on a mission and we stay out of your way. <laughs> we don't want to get in the way because we can tell you're looking for someone and it's not me. You know, what's it like to be scanned and you're not the one being looked for. You're not the one somebody is after. You're just an anonymous face in the crowd, and it's somebody else that's being looked for. Well, I just want to ask the question. I want to ask this. What if God 
were to show up in the room? And what if you were the one he was looking for? What if you were the one that he was seeking out? Today, as we continue our series on worship, I'm going to make the biblical case that despite what you think, despite how we like to think of Jesus, who's looking for everybody, I want to make the biblical case that he's not looking for everybody. He's looking for someone specific. And Jesus himself, I think, makes the case that he's willing to scan the room and skip over the ones that he's not out to find, but he's looking for someone specific. Is it you? Is it you that he's looking for? I'm just going to go straight to the meat of the topic right here. Jesus had this conversation with that woman, the woman that nobody was looking for. The woman that nobody wanted. All the other women in town always talked about her, never to her. She was the topic of all the hot gossip. She was the one that everybody had rejected. Nobody wanted anything to do with her, and so that's why she came to the well that day in the middle of the day. All the cool kids came early in the morning, but she came alone. She came by herself because she knew what they were saying about her. She knew how they were talking about her. She knew nobody wanted her. But Jesus finds her by the well. He starts a conversation with her, and she keeps trying to change the subject because she's just trying to avoid getting real with Jesus. Maybe you've been there. Maybe Jesus has started talking to you and you'll do whatever you got to do to avoid getting real with him. Maybe you'll say whatever you got to say to avoid the sensitive topic that you know he wants to point out in your life. And so he's talking to this lady and this is where Jesus takes the conversation. In John 4, he says, the time is coming and indeed it's here now when True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He takes this a little bit further as he says, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The Father is looking for a certain type of person. He's not just looking for anybody and everybody. He doesn't just have his arms up. Oh, please, would anybody please just come to me? The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm going I'm to go ahead and get there. We talked last week about the fact that worship is a response. It's our response to God for who he is and for what he does. So the first blank on your page is God looks for responders in spirit and in truth. God is looking for responders. 
people who catch a glimpse of him and are willing to respond to him in spirit and in truth. He is seeking those people. Is that you? Is that me? How do I know? What even does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Now, I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to try to explain spirit and truth a little bit. And, and I'm just going to do the best I can to say it in just a very few minutes. But I promise you, there's been entire books written about this. I mean, there's so much more that I can deal with in just a few minutes on a Sunday morning. But I'm going to try to explain it as succinctly as I can. Jesus is saying that God is looking for those who will worship in spirit and in truth. I did a little research, try to do a little digging on what it means to worship in spirit. And frankly, the scholars are a little bit divided on the meaning of this phrase. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Most of the scholars, that like 75% of them, say that when Jesus is talking about worshiping in spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit the way you and I would expect him to be talking. Because, there's several reasons they say this, because, you know, when Jesus is talking to this Samaritan, Samaritan woman, he's not trying to drop a whole new theology on her. You see, Jewish people and Samaritans did not know that there even was a trinity, let alone that there is a person of the trinity who is called the Holy Spirit. It wasn't part of their understanding at all. So they did not believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, at this point in John's gospel, has talked about the Holy Spirit, but he's only talked about it to small groups of disciples. He hasn't talked about the Holy Spirit to large groups of people, and certainly not to foreigners, which is what this Samaritan woman was. And so most of the scholars are saying that when Jesus is talking about worshiping in spirit, he's talking about your spirit, you being a person who is worshiping in spirit. So if that's true, then the next blank on your page is that when God says worship by the spirit, he means worship in earnest from the heart. Worshiping from the spirit means that it bubbles up from inside of you. It boils over and overflows. It's something that you just can't contain. It's authentic. It's genuine. It is just something that you do and you can't help it. It's not something you've programmed. It's not something you've, you've laid out and planned. It just comes out of you worshiping in spirit. Now, there are some scholars that say that when Jesus says worship in spirit here, he is meaning to intend Holy Spirit. Now, most scholars don't think that. I don't think that because it wouldn't make sense to this woman at all. Um, but this is the reason that most of our English translations show that Jesus says God is spirit, capital S, and those who worship him must worship in lowercase s, spirit and truth. But if you want to be one of the 25% who says that, no, if, if Jesus says worship in spirit, he means worship by the spirit, that I can only worship in the power of the Holy Spirit, I would say to you, amen, brother, I agree with you on that. You can only worship by the power of the spirit. You don't have it in you of yourself to be able to worship him. The scripture is actually clear that it's God that gives us the ability to see him and respond to him. 
So your theology is good either way. Is that cool? Wow, that was a whole theology class in about three minutes. So spirit, I mean, either way, it's going to be an authentic, genuine bubble up from inside of you worship. It's worshiping by the spirit. I believe God created you as a complete, comprehensive, whole person. And you are a person of intellect, of physicality, of emotions. And if you're in Christ, you're a person of the spirit. And so you are worshiping in spirit means it comes genuinely from you. What does it mean to worship in truth? Worshiping in truth means that you respond genuinely to who he really is, to how he's revealed himself. Next mic on your page is truth means informed by God's revelation of himself. In other words, you've actually caught a glimpse of him and you see him a little bit for who he really is. You're not making up stuff about him. You, you don't just like this particular song about ocean waves. You actually have seen God. He has revealed himself to you, usually by his Word. That's why the church has always held it to be sacred that we preach the Word of God on Sunday mornings to each other because we want to see God. And God has been clear with us about Himself through His Word. So worshiping in spirit means it's earnest from the heart. It comes from within. And worshiping in truth means it's worshiping God for who He really is. Does that make sense? Okay, so Jesus was very concerned about this. He was very concerned, apparently, that we worshiped in spirit and in truth. It's not just something he said to this Samaritan woman. In fact, he gets really upset at one point with, who does he always get upset with? The Pharisees, the religious people, right? The ones that had it all down and knew all the stuff. So you'd think they'd get it right sometimes, but it seems like Jesus was very frequently upset with them. And you know Jesus, he's very loving and kind and patient. So he looks to them and says, Verily, verily, my beloved brothers, uh, I beseech you in the name of God. Is that what he says to them? No, here's what Jesus says to him, Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Jesus is pretty upset. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites for he wrote these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me oh they know the right songs they sing in the right key they show up dressed well they know all the church lingo to talk to each other right we have the official church greetings on sunday mornings when you see each other out there in the parking lot you know how it goes how are you doing great how are you doing great isn't that what we always do and we don't mean it right you're great are you great bruce yeah you're great you're great but you may be going through the the most difficult pain in your life but when you get in the church parking lot oh great yeah, they, they've got it all down. They know how to talk the talk. They know how to dress up right. They know how to sing the songs, and they sing them real pretty. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship 
is a farce. They gather together and sing, and it's all fake. It doesn't mean anything. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Somebody has stood up in front of them, or somebody has gotten together with them, and they've started describing me in a way that is untrue to my character. And that is enough for Jesus to call these religious people hypocrites. Do we see that today? I, I do. I do. We've got friends that, that go to a, a, a big church where I've watched the pastor. Uh, they've sent me, you know, you need to watch this message from this pastor. He's a much better pastor than you are. And he, he's a much better public speaker than I am. Um, but I've pages and pages of notes where he's just lying about God, lying about what the Bible actually says, misrepresenting God to the people. But man, do they dance around and worship. Something's missing. Something is a farce here. And it looks good, sounds good, but it's an abomination against God. A while back, Jeff Parker, our worship leader, he showed a little video about the meaning of worship to our worship team. And there was a really cool little uh, description in there about spirit and truth worship. And I thought I would pass it on to you today. So here it is. Look at this. Spirit without truth leads to a shallow, overly emotional experience that could be compared to a high. As soon as the emotion is over, when the fervor cools, the worship ends. It's fake cow worship. Remember last week? The, the people of God worshiping at the base of Mount Sinai. And they were having a big celebration to Yahweh. They called it the celebration to Yahweh. And they were all dancing around. And it felt like worship. All the thrills and chills you can imagine. It looked like worship. It sounded like worship. Man, did it feel good. But it was an abomination against God. Because it was, there was no truth. There was spirit, but no truth. Truth, however, without spirit can result in dry, passionless encounters that can easily lead to a form of joyless legalism. Have we seen that? We call that the frozen chosen, right? We call that the group of people that they gather together, and man, they don't have it going on. They can sing the beautiful songs, and dude, the form may be very beautiful, but there's just no substance there, right? There's no depth. There's no passion. There's no resonating worship among the people of God. It's beautiful, but it's missing something. Jesus tells us that God is looking for the people that worship in spirit and in truth. So where does that even come from? How do you get that? How do you arrive there at spirit and truth? We saw Isaiah's experience a little bit last week where he uncovered the foundational truth of how to get to spirit and truth. We looked at part of it last week. Let's look at it again in Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah says, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Man, Isaiah saw 
God. What an amazing thing to catch a glimpse of God himself. And Isaiah doesn't even get to see all of God. He just sees the train or the, remember, the hem of his robe filling the temple. And attending him, he says, were mighty seraphim. Do you remember what that word means? Fire beings, fire creatures. Attending God, the attendants of God, the servants of God are fire creatures. Don't know what they are, don't understand them, but each of them have six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And these fire creatures are calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. This is amazing. This is an amazing vision that he has. That these creatures that are far above us, that have the ability to shake the building with their voice, they're fire creatures, and all they apparently do is just cry out about the holiness of God. They are beings that exist in a state of worship. Oh man, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if we just existed on fire for God all the time? So here they are flying around and calling out how holy God is. It's an amazing vision. And then we saw Isaiah's immediate response. He says, it's all over. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy, what? Filthy lips. What does that mean? Huh? Foul language. Talking trash about people? Profanity? What? Insincerity? Mm. Filthy lips. And I come from a people, he says, who have filthy lips. Can you identify? I'm kind of born into it. I mean, I hear it all the time. You don't understand the people I work with. Man, I got to talk that way or they don't hear a word I say. You know, or I'm kind of born into it. You know, you just don't know. My family's all about the gossip of each other. And so I just got to pick sides and hope for the best. I have filthy lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. Listen, I promise you, I promise you the gossip that you tell the trash that you talk, the insincerity that comes out of your mouth, the foul language is an abomination against God. I know you and I are just in the middle of it. We're kind of wet with it. It's all around us, and we think it's okay because we're so conditioned to it, but it is never okay with God. And Isaiah recognized this. He recognized that the things that come out of his mouth are an affront to God. And he says, I'm doomed. I deserve immediate, swift death in his presence because he is holy and I'm filthy. He's righteous and I got nothing but filthy rags. And so 
He thinks he's doomed. He thinks he's about to be killed in the presence of God, and he should be right about that. But something happens. One of the seraphim, he goes on to say, one of the fire creatures flew to me with a burning coal that he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it. Okay, so hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold the story right here. Now all of a sudden there's coals and tongs and an altar. He didn't mention that before, but he is in the temple, right? I mean, his vision is God in the temple, and we know that in the temple is the altar of atonement. So out in the courtyard, all of the people of Israel come and they all um, make sacrifices for their atonement and the priests oversee the sacrifices. So, so they're always out there sacrificing the animals, especially on the day of atonement. They've all come and they're all making their sacrifices. And on that day, on that special day, the day of atonement, the priest goes inside only the priests can go inside and they bring part of the sacrifice and they put it on the altar the altar of atonement and it's here it's in this room this holy sanctuary that the sins of all of the people are atoned for the priest mediates over this Sacrifice this final payment on behalf of all of the people. So that's an altar with burning coals and with a sacrifice on top on the day of atonement. And Isaiah sees this fire creature approach him and flies to him with a, the burning coal that he had taken from the altar with what? Doesn't that blow you away? So he's got tongs, you know, those, uh, those big tongs, and he's holding the coal. Right, let me just ask you a question. It blows me away. Why would a fire creature need tongs to hold a coal? Doesn't that bother you? I mean, he's a fire creature. He exists on fire. His very existence is a flame. Is the coal too hot for him to hold? I don't think that makes any sense. But there's clearly something going on here. So I did a little reading on this, and all the scholars agree that Isaiah is seeing something much deeper, much more profound than simply a fire creature bringing him a tongue with a coal. The coal comes from the altar of atonement. It's the coal that represents the atonement for sins. He brings the coal over, and what does he do with it? He takes the coal, and he touches Isaiah's lips with it and says, See, this coal has touched your lips. Remember, you're a person of filthy what? Lips. And so the coal of atonement is applied directly to the place of sin. It's applied directly to where the sin is, and he touches the sin with the coal. You see, here's what I think. I think the coal is not about heat. I think it's about holiness. And this fire creature is not worthy to handle the holiness of the coal. Who is the coal? 
Jesus is our atonement for our sins. He is the one that pays for our guilt, and he is the one that cleanses us from our sin. And the, even the fire creatures that attend God are not worthy to lay their hands on the holy coal. Jesus is above even the fire creatures. Can I get an amen on that? And so right now we're seeing this beautiful picture of his guilt being removed. Look at this. His guilt being removed and, there's this word and here, your sins are forgiven. Now when you read this in English, you'll look at this and you're like, oh, he's being redundant here. He's saying the same thing twice. Guilt removed, sins forgiven. It's the same thing. He could have just said guilt removed, saved me a minute on that. But that's not really what he's saying. And this word and ought to be a good hint. When I saw and, I was like, something else is up right here. And so what I found is that in the original language, in Hebrew here, he says, your guilt is removed. But then he says, there's something more. There's something else. It's not only that your sins have removed. He actually says your sins are atoned for. They have been paid. You've been forgiven and all of your debt is paid. That's what this is really saying. He's explaining the difference that Isaiah receives between mercy and grace. He's showing off God's mercy and his grace. You know what mercy is, right? You know what mercy is. Mercy, next blank on your page, is not getting what we deserve. Isaiah thought he was going to get what he deserved. In the presence of a holy God, anything unholy deserves to be destroyed instantly. He thought he was going to be killed right away. And I don't think we think about mercy enough. I don't think we realize mercy enough. I think every single day, you and I take for granted the mercy of God. Do you deserve to take one more breath? Do I deserve to take one more breath? Listen, God knows what you did this week. God knows you're a person of filthy lips. And you're from a people of filthy lips. He knows what came out of your mouth. Maybe even worse, he knows what didn't come out of your mouth, but it's rolling around in the back of your head. God has an astronomically high standard, and he's totally justified in having that standard. That's why Jesus says stuff like, hey, um, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you've already committed the act. If you call somebody a fool, you've murdered them. He's telling us that God has this incredibly high and totally justified standard because God is holy. And his character is nothing like our character. And in his presence, we don't deserve to survive. Holy cow, if we could just catch a glimpse of who he really is. If we could really just see who he really is, boy, it would really... Show us who we truly are. And we dare come into his presence. We dare gather together in a group like this and claim to sing to him. Who in the heck do you think you are? 
that you would dare approach a holy God and claim that I would dare stand on a stage in a spotlight and claim to speak for him. Why doesn't he kill me on the spot? Think about it this way. What if, what if I came to your neighborhood tonight and in the street right in front of your house, what if I brutally murdered your son? Just brutally with my bare hands, murdered your son. And you're inside the house looking out the window and you see it happen right there on the street in front of your house. And with bloody hands, clothes, I come barging into your house and I plop myself down on your easy chair with food that I just stole from your refrigerator. And I say, what are you going to do about it now? Dude, you would be totally justified to get your gun and blow me the heck away. Am I right? Right? You'd be completely justified in ending me right then and there. But God sees you differently. Isn't this exactly what we do to him? Isn't it my sin that killed his son on the cross? Isn't it my guilt that caused him to suffer and die? It's my fault that he went to that cross and died in agony. I did that to him, and he doesn't kill me right here where I stand. Dude, that is mercy. Am I right? Every breath I take is an exercise in God's mercy being revealed. But it doesn't end there. It's not just mercy. But if mercy is not getting what we deserve, grace, next blank on your page, is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So I sit there on the easy chair, bloodied with the son's blood, looking at the father, saying, what are you going to do about it? And he welcomes me. He removes my blood-stained clothes, and he clothes me in his righteousness. He doesn't call me his enemy. He calls me his son. And he says, you think this chair is good? I have a place reserved for you forever. And you'll sit right next to the very son you murdered. You're my child. That is grace. Come on, that is grace. Have you seen it? Can you not help but be amazed by that? If you can just catch a glimpse of his mercy and his grace, you can't help but have it bubble up inside of you. You can't help but have it break you and turn you into a person who worships in spirit and in truth. Once again, like we saw last week, what this shows is that, next blank on your page, worship begins with God. 
It begins with God. Worship isn't something you and I can conjure up. There's no mechanical formula we can put together, sing the right songs, have the lights set just right, and then we'll worship. No, it's something that starts with God, with who he is. And until you and I catch a glimpse of him, we'll never be true worshipers. You can't worship him unless you see him for who he is and what he's done. So what would that look like? What would that look like for us? I mean, I don't mean during the week. We could talk for hours and hours about what that might mean in your job situation or in your family life, but what would that mean just here on Sunday mornings, you know, in the middle of a COVID pandemic? What would that look like? How would we be changed if we just really caught a glimpse of his true mercy and grace? You know, I thought I could probably do a message on how to posture yourself to truly worship, you know, and how to, how to describe what that might look like. I thought I might do that because I've sat through that message. You know, I've sat through that message where I've been explained, okay, when you, when you come to worship, uh, if you stand, then you're saying this. If you kneel, you're saying that. If you hold your hands like this, you're signifying this one thing to God. If you hold your hands up like that, you're signifying something else. If you're just one-handed, it's one thing. If you, I mean, I've sat through the message where they mechanically explain through all that in a sermon, and it's the worst sermon ever. It's awful. It's terrible. There's nothing worse than telling someone how to program the way they're going to worship. So I'm not going to do that. I just started thinking about the moving events in my life. And I started thinking about how when I'm moved by something, I just, I just, I change my posture, my hands get involved. And you, you've had the experience. You're, you're teaching that one-year-old how to take their first steps, and they're walking for the first time, right? Hello? Or your daughter scores a goal at soccer. woo She scored a goal, right? Can't help but change your posture, or your son graduates high school despite all of his best efforts. <laughs> right? <laughs> My hands just get involved there. Or holding that grandbaby for the first time. And I just know it's in those moments. I'm not thinking about my posture. I'm not trying to say, well, should I put one fist up or both fists up? You know, thumb inside, thumb outside. I'm not programming. I'm just, I just want to be connected. I just want to be involved. I just want to experience it for all I can experience it for. I don't want to miss one little coo or cry from that grandbaby. And I just want to hold that grandbaby as tightly as I can. <laughs> I just want to show up and respond in whatever way it looks like in the moment. I want to be like that sick guy. There's a story that Luke tells us about Jesus traveling. 
right? He's traveling, and as he's traveling, he's continuing on toward Jerusalem because Jesus, in the latter part of his ministry, was always moving toward Jerusalem. And so he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. So he's moving into Samaria, where all the foreigners are. And as he entered the village there, 10 men with COVID, um, leprosy, stood at an appropriate social distance. Right? So you got 10 guys who are sick with the leprosy. I know you know what leprosy is. It's way the heck worse than COVID ever thought about being. It's a terrible, deadly disease. It's deadly for 100% of the people that get it. You don't recover from leprosy. And it's highly contagious. Now, they didn't understand leprosy then like we do now. Um, but we know what it is today. They thought it was a disease that just caused your body to disintegrate. Literally, fingers and noses falling off, and you just keep disintegrating until you die. And it kind of sort of is that, but it's not just because you start falling apart. It's because your nerve endings all die, and you can't tell when you're hurting yourself. So you cut your finger off or you scrape up against a rock or you, you know, whatever. So you got open sores because you're always injuring yourself and you don't even realize it. And so you literally just inadvertently tear your body up until you're dead. That's what happens. So leprosy is a horrible, incurable disease. And anybody that had leprosy was required to wear the mask and stay at a social distance. You were considered to be unholy, unclean. And so it was required by law that if you had leprosy, that you maintain that social distance. And everywhere you went, you stayed masked and you called out, unclean, 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 so that everybody could stay as far away from you as they possibly could. Because nobody, nobody wanted that. So here's these 10 guys shunned from society. Literally Nobody wants them. Nobody wants around them. Nobody wants anything to do with them. They are isolated and alone from everyone. They're diseased and filthy. They have a death sentence pronounced on their life. And they have to stay away from everyone until that day happens. The holy men, the Pharisees, the rabbis, when they would come by, they would see these lepers as people who had accumulated enough sin in their life to where they were being punished by God. And so the rabbis would add additional curses onto them. That's church people for you. And so as Jesus enters the village, the 10 men with leprosy, they stood at a distance. They stayed their distance from Jesus, but they cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. See, they recognized Jesus as a rabbi, and so they fully expected for him to curse them and to move their death date up as far as they were concerned. And they didn't want that. So they're begging Jesus. They don't say heal us. They say have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Please don't pronounce any more curses on us. We're cursed enough. We're dealing with enough. Have mercy on us. 
And so Jesus looks at them and he says something amazing. Instead of pronouncing a curse, he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. I got to imagine that the first thing that goes to their head is, why would I want to get near a priest? First of all, I can't get near a priest, but those people only curse me. They only make me worse than I already am. But they go. For whatever reason, they go toward the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. I mean, as they're going, they're looking down at their spots that they have, their sores, their open sores. Maybe a finger reappears. You know, holy cow, look at this. I was filthy, dirty. I, I was awful. I was sick. I was dying. But now look at me. Look at me. I'm clean. I'm whole again. And they go to the priest and they show themselves there and they're cleansed. But one of them, one-tenth of them, when he saw that he was healed, he came back to Jesus shouting. I'm going to say that again. The one, not whimpering, not trying to kind of sneak his way in. The one who saw that he had been cleansed by the master, he comes back to Jesus shouting. And he comes back and he's shouting, praise God, praise God. And he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. And Luke's just got to get the dig in there. This man was a Samaritan. <laughs> and Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Only one-tenth back. Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus says to the man, Stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Here's what I want you to see. That day, all 10 of those guys received something from God. All 10 of those guys were healed, but only one became his. 10 healed, but only one truly healed his and I don't know about you but I want to be that one I want to be the one that comes running back to Jesus I don't want to receive what he has for me and then sneak away quietly never to return I want to come running back into his presence shouting his name and telling him how awesome he is I want to look him in the eye and I want to say thank you thank you for loving me thank you for cleansing me and I don't ever want it to stop I want to be in in his presence and I just want to be clean and I want to recognize that he is the master that's what worship really is God finds those last blank on your page God finds those who are amazed by his grace God's looking for those who have seen him and are amazed I think he scans the room and he disregards the anonymous faces, but he locks in on the one who is amazed by him. And that's the one whose faith truly heals. That's the one who receives both mercy and grace.